Dementia will define as memory loss to the point where it's interfering with the ability to get through the day. Just removing the plaques and the waste is not going to be the only cure-all for Alzheimer's. What we see is that the part of the insulin-degrading protein can play a role not only in helping insulin function, but it also plays a role in clearing away waste, garbage, and trash in the brain. We all know that sleep is important, but one of the top reasons why it's so important is it's when you wash your brain. It's when you, you wash out all this waste, but it's a piece of the puzzle. It's not the only thing that's happening. It's multiple factors. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, I am so excited about today's episode. It is about a topic that is so important to me and I know to so many people as well, and that is brain health and specifically taking care of our brains as we age. I am here with Mark Milstein, the author of The Age Proof Brain, and we dive deep into so many topics. I know a lot of people are concerned with things like Alzheimer's and dementia. We talk all about that, but not just that, but really how anybody can help support their brain health for the long term. We talk about the controversies with Alzheimer's medication, the difference between tau versus beta amyloid protein and what that means, the role of genetics in brain health and Alzheimer's, the role of the APOE4 gene, which I know a lot of people are concerned with, the concept of super agers when it comes to the brain, how naps and sleep affect the brain, what actually happens when you learn, the role of memory formation, ways to support the brain, the concept of dreams, how our brains prune throughout life, how childhood and our upbringing affects our brains, the role of therapy, so, so many things. I loved this conversation so, so much, and I cannot wait to hear what you guys think. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash ageproofbrain. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then find my Instagram, check out the Friday announcement post, and again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. If you are enjoying the show, the absolute best way to support it, I promise, is to subscribe and or write a brief review in Apple Podcasts. It helps so much more than most people realize, so thank you so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market. 
ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which 
mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Mark Milstein. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I'm about to have. It is about topics that I am very obsessed with. So aging, but in particular, the brain and brain health. And so when I became aware, well, when the representatives that be reached out to me about our guest book today, which is The Age-Proof Brain, New Strategies to Improve Memory, Protect Immunity, and Fight Off Dementia. I mean, I was immediately hooked just based on the title alone and the credentials of our guest. It's written by Dr. Mark Milstein. And then I sat down and read the book and oh my goodness, I mean, no pun intended, it was mind-blowing. I learned so many things. And what I really liked about it is not only did it dive really deep into the workings of the brain and how we think and learn and create memory and the reasons behind cognitive decline, but it really provides a comprehensive picture of all of the factors involved in brain health. So it doesn't just focus on the brain, it goes into all of the factors. So immunity and the heart and our body and even our gut microbiome. So I am just really, really excited about this conversation. I have so many questions. I have no idea where we're going to go because there's so much we could cover. But Dr. Milstein, thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. So I will let listeners know a little bit about you. So you got your PhD in biological chemistry and your Bachelor of Science in molecular, cellular, and developmental biology from UCLA, my rival school. We, we talked about this before. I went to USC. You've been published in multiple scientific journals and the press as well, USA Today, Huffington Post, Weight Watchers Magazine, all the things. But yeah, so your book, The Age-Proof Brain, came out in October 2022. So yeah, so thank you so much for being here. So for listeners to introduce yourself, your backstory, have you always been interested in the brain? What led to the trajectory to where you are today with all of the work that you're doing surrounding that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I actually started out at UCLA in breast cancer research, and I was part of a, a group of researchers that were looking at a protein that was not only involved in cancer progression, but it was also involved in memory. And so at the time, that was really interesting that something in one part of the body also played a role in learning and memory. And it was really just around the time that our understanding of the brain was really growing and there's all these breakthroughs. And it really was just very exciting to see how understanding how the brain worked was really giving us insights into how to, for example, sleep better or, you know, improve our memory. And it also really informed my interest in how, as you mentioned, different parts of the, the body, our gut and our, our metabolism all impacts our brain health. It's not just about doing crossword puzzles or, you know, just something that you think is just happening in your brain. So that was really where I shifted my focus and, and started focusing more on the brain because it was just this really revolution our understanding of that the more we're learning, the more we can actually break this down into things that we can do that can be really helpful. So that protein, what was its function? It was called RIN1, and it was involved in essentially for, for in, in cancer progression, it was a signaling protein that basically told the cell whether or not to grow or not grow. In learning and memory, the same protein was involved in sending signals through neurons that were helping with consolidation of memory. So it's just really interesting how the body uses these same proteins for very different functions in different parts of the body. Well, that's really interesting. Are there a lot of other proteins like that throughout the body doing other things? Yeah, yeah, there is. And so it's 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 really fascinating how the body, you know, has used different proteins, different molecules in one way in one part of the body versus other parts of the body. That's kind of like insulin degrading enzyme. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I find that so fascinating, especially since I also host the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. We talk about insulin all the time. So I think people will find this really interesting, its role in the brain. Yeah. Essentially, what happens is, is that the way I always like to think about it is it's like your desk. If your desk gets messy or you know, you know your, your desk fills up with papers, it's usually because you're distracted or you have so much work to do that you're not basically cleaning it. And so in the brain, what we see is that the part of the insulin degrading protein can play a role not only in helping insulin function, but it also plays a role in clearing away waste, garbage, and trash in the brain. And if there's issues with insulin, that takes precedent. It's more important in the moment for the brain to deal with that so that we don't essentially collapse so that there is not as much cleanup happening in the brain. The insulin degrading protein essentially doesn't function as properly. And so what we realize is that that can lead to this buildup of waste. And that's how we now realize that 
there's many things that build up this waste in the brain that can have a negative impact on brain functioning, on memory, productivity, focus. But one of those factors in this complex puzzle is metabolism and is diabetes. And, and if we don't take care of those things, that can lead to or, or, or play a role in this accumulation of this waste or trash in the brain. Have they done studies specifically on people and their insulin levels and their brain health? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we see that individuals who have diabetes, for example, if they're not treated effectively, it's one of the biggest risk factors for Alzheimer's and dementia. It raises the risk about 65%. But we also see that if the diabetes is treated effectively, that risk factor goes down significantly. So it really shows us that we have ways to protect the brain through treatments we already have. We just want to take advantage of them. We want to be on top of these other aspects of our health. It doesn't mean it's the only thing that we have to do, but it's it's these these accumulation of these factors. And one of those factors is really being on top of insulin, insulin resistance, and even early stages of it. And we now know that that can raise the risk for issues with mood, depression. People with insulin resistance have a higher risk of developing things like depression. So we realize that these things are connected to brain health. And this is what you talk about on the book, and you just talked about it right now, how there are so many factors involved. And I think that makes it really complicated because we like to find, you know, we want to find one cause and one solution, which would fit really well with our, you know, medical conventional paradigm. Actually, question about that. I should know more about this. <laughs> I really should. What was the controversy recently with that Alzheimer's medication that was like not real or not? <laughs> Like, like not what it was supposed to be doing. There was two two controversies. One was with there's two new medications. Basically, they're what they're the goal of them is to remove the waste. And the the positive side is that they seem to be doing this. They seem to be helping remove the waste, which is as you mentioned, it's not the only factor, but it is a factor. The concern about it is that is it only working in early stages? And also the concern about it is that there's some serious side effects with it. So it, it's, a, it's a step forward in terms of our understanding, but we need a lot more research. There was also some controversy in the fact that it was approved on a conditional basis. So it, it's not fully approved. It's something that people can try if, if their physician feels like it's warranted in that specific case, but it is not by any means a magic pill or, or something that's just going to, you know, cure Alzheimer's at this point. And then there's another controversy that is important to talk about where there was some research from a while ago where there was some overstating about the impact of this. So this trash, uh, you know, I refer to it as trash, but what we're talking about here is these plaques, the amyloid plaques that build up in the brain. And they definitely play a role in the progression of memory loss and dementia and Alzheimer's, but they're not the only factor. That's why, it, just as you said, it's it's not just simple. It's not that, oh, if we just you know get rid of this trash, then we cure this disease, but it's a piece of the puzzle. It's not the only thing that's happening. It's multiple factors. It's metabolism, as we talked about. It's inflammation. It's our immune system. So it's all these things that work together, and each individual with Alzheimer's doesn't necessarily have the same exact factors. So it can be different factors in one person that are leading to the progression of the disease and another person could be different factors too. That's what makes it complex. But in all this complexity, we do see that there's this hopeful insight that if we do certain things, you know, day to day, then we can lower our risk of memory loss by dealing with the things that, that age the brain. So diving deeper into this trash that you talk about. So with all of the, and maybe we should also define the different types of dementia and cognitive decline, but is 
this trash, and I'm presuming this is beta amyloid and tau, is it required to have cognitive decline? Can you have cognitive decline without it? And can you have it and not have cognitive decline? Like what are the options? Yeah, that's exactly what you're saying is an important point is that there are people, and this is a big surprise in the research that there are people who have lots of this, you know, if you do a brain scan and you see that they have quite a bit of this waste or trash, which is either the beta amyloid or the tau protein. I mean, those are the tangles that form inside the brain cells. The plaques are basically plaque formations that form in between the brain cells. And you can see some individuals that have significant amounts of this trash inside and outside of their brain cells. And you would say, oh, this person would have memory loss. And in some cases, those people don't. And so what we believe is happening there is that it's not the only factor. It is a factor in in some cases. It's not the only factor. It's I, I like to think of it like it's like a glass and each of these factors is like putting more water in the glass until it overflows, but there's different ways to put water in the glass. And so that's why, you know, just removing the plaques and the waste is not going to be the only cure-all for Alzheimer's. It's a piece of the puzzle, but there are some cases where we believe other things are happening too, where the immune system is incorrectly attacking the brain. We believe there's cases where it's metabolism, where the, the brain basically runs on its ability to utilize and use sugar, and that response is not working correctly. And so the brain's not able to signal properly or use energy. So it's it's not one thing, but it's these multiple factors. And it doesn't have to just be the the waste or the trash. So some people have quite a bit of this, but there are other factors that are are essentially working well and it's buffering and it's it's the brain is still functioning. And that really gives us hope that because there's other things that we can do that it's not just reliant on the trash or the waste alone. Can you have cognitive decline and no trash? Or is there always trash? No, absolutely. So there's different types of, there's many, many causes of dementia, which we'll just say is, you know, dementia will define as memory loss to the point where it's interfering with the ability to get through the day. And that can happen because of vascular issues, not enough blood supply to the brain, which would may or may not be related to this waste or this trash. Injuries can cause dementia or memory loss. There can be side effects to medications that can cause memory loss, deficiencies in nutrients, vitamins, all these things. And that's why we don't want to just jump. If somebody's showing any signs of memory loss, we don't want to just say, oh, it's definitely you know this specific thing. We always want to dig deeper and figure out what is the root cause because actually about 18 to 20% of all cases of dementia are highly treatable. They're, they're caused by things that are, as we mentioned, you know, hormone imbalances, vitamin deficiency, side effects to medication. So really one of the important messages is that we don't want to just say, oh, it's, it's you know, there's nothing we can do because in many cases there are things that, that can be done. And that's why we want to get on top of these things early. You know, we don't want to, it's, it's hard to talk about these things sometimes, but that's why these conversations are important. Well, speaking of early, so to diagnose or see this trash, does that require open skull surgery? No, no. So you can, there are brain scans available now that can see this. And there's also, you can look at spinal fluid that can show, give a, an assessment of the amount of trash. And there's all this really interesting ways on the horizon means to do this. So for example, there's some excitement around blood tests that would be able to give a sense of buildup of some of this, this waste that's, that's hopefully coming soon and is in clinical trials. And there's some really positive results there. And there's even some studies where they look in the eyes and they can see the buildup of some of this waste in parts of the eye that that can correlate to the amount in the brain. So as that's really a key part of this, all of this is that as we want to do everything we can to on one hand, lower risk. And that's really what the book is is mostly about is how do you lower risk, but also 
as we move forward, how do we detect things early as possible? Because when we can do that, that's when we believe we can make the most impact. So one of the things you talk about is the three ways that you can take out this trash with learning, sleeping, or what's the third way? Your immune system. Yeah. So how do those processes actually work? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we want to think of it like the way I think about it is your brain is like a factory and it makes trash. So your your brain's about three pounds and it makes five pounds of this trash a year and you have to get rid of it. You have to get rid of most of it. You know, you don't want it. It's just like your house, your apartment. If it's filling up with too much of this stuff, it's hard to find things or focus. So as you said, there's three key things that we can do to get this trash out. And one of the, one of the most powerful things is all these really fascinating insights around sleep. So when you go to bed at night, at certain parts of, of the night while you're sleeping, your brain, think of it like a kind of a sponge squeezing. It constricts. And I know it sounds kind of like a horror movie, but your brain is shrinking down while you're sleeping and it's squeezing out waste, trash, and toxins. And because your brain is constricting during certain parts of the sleep cycle, it's squeezing this waste out into some empty space that's now available. And fluid then comes up from your spinal cord and washes this trash away. And this is called the glymphatic system. It's a really new discovery. And it's just amazing to think about, you know, we all know that sleep is important, but one of the top reasons why it's so important is it's when you wash your brain. It's when you, you wash out all this waste and these toxins, and that's why we want to get enough of it. We want to prioritize it because it's something that we now know we can take a lot more control over. So that's one thing is you want to wash your brain at night <laughs> to wash out the trash and the waste, keep it clean. The second thing is we see all these really interesting studies with super agers that these are people that live, you know, in, in their 80s, 90s, up to 100, and, and they have the memory of someone like decades younger. And it's like, what's their secret? Well, they, they do several things <laughs> that are important. But one thing is they keep learning new things. And again, not the only thing that's important, but we just want to leverage all the things that we know are important. And this is on that list. Because when you learn something new, which is different than just, you know, rehashing information you already know, you're not only forcing your brain cells to make new connections, which is important because as we age, we lose some connections, but also you actually are releasing something in your brain called norepinephrine. And we believe that helps break up some of the trash formation in the brain. So new, new, new is important. Like it doesn't matter what it is, but learn new things, you know, new sports, new, new, new subjects, new languages, just make it fun. It doesn't, you don't have to do all those things, but just pick something. It's like, I'm going to learn something new a couple times a week. It's just really good for your brain. The third thing is, is being aware that our immune system is really tied to our brain health and there's this basically like, I, I like to think of it like if you go to an aquarium and you see that bottom feeder gobbling up the trap waste at the bottom of the tank, you have something just like that in your brain. And it's gobbling up waste and trash and garbage that forms naturally. And it keeps your brain clean. It's just like imagine it gobbling up all the garbage. But the problem is, is that this microglia can get confused. And instead of gobbling up the garbage, it makes it, it starts attacking healthy brain cells. And not only does it not clean up the garbage, but when it attacks healthy brain cells, it basically destroys them and turns them into more waste and more garbage. So that's why we want to really optimize and balance our immune system because it's so tied to our brain health because we want to keep those microglia focused so they can gobble up the garbage for us and not make more garbage or miss garbage in the brain. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. 
May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Okay. That was a lot. (laughs) That was a lot. (laughs) So it's great for listeners learning new things, keeping our brain. So for the glymphatic system, I'm so fascinated because it was 2013, I think that they discovered it. Like that just seems so relatively recent to find something that was so huge. How did we miss it before? Yeah, isn't it? It's so amazing. You know, if you think about how recent that is, and we thought that we we knew, it's like a map. Like we thought we knew where everything was. If you think of like a map, of the United States, like there's not some like new city that's going to pop up. You're like, oh, we didn't know this was there. But but it's in the brain. You know, it's hard to visualize the brain. So the technology and the ability to see these things has improved and dramatically in the last you know ten years, even five years. So that that's a key part of it is just like to see what's happening there on this very small level and really understand it. The other thing is that it was missed for several years. There were, there were studies where people said, I think we see something like this happening, but we don't believe that there is a lymphatic system in the brain. And so from the neck down, we knew that the body is constantly like cleaning itself by using this lymph system. And we were, we just thought it ended at the neck. That was just what, what was like, that was the, mo- that was the paradigm. That was the model. And we didn't have, and so when people saw glimmers of this happening, they, they sort of dismissed it. And then it wasn't until several studies started saying, wait a second, there's something happening here, plus the technology of the ability to visualize it. And then also there was some subsequent studies that sort of all coalesced around the same time that gave us insight into not only where all the waste is going, there's these vacuoles, like basically tunnels in the neck where we realize, well, wait a second, this is where the trash is exiting out of the brain. And this all now, you know, we see it clearly and it all makes sense. And there's this new idea. So yeah, it's amazing that something that you would think is, you know, anatomical or physiological would be discovered so recently, but it's been such a, a breakthrough in our understanding. 
And then the actual trash that comes out, where does it go? Do we excrete it? Yeah, it basically then works with the rest of your... So you have all these lymph nodes and lymph system throughout your body. And so once it goes out of the these vacuoles in the neck, it's processed there, just like any other waste or toxins in your body, and then it's excreted out. Is that system activated during naps or just during sleep, longer sleep? Yeah, so it depends on how long your nap is, but <laughs> you pretty much want to keep your naps short because... If you go too long on your nap, you end up in deep sleep where you, which is a phase of the sleep cycle where if you've ever woken up from a nap and you're like, I feel awful, I feel terrible, that's likely the nap went a little too long. The glymphatic system, that that washing is activated at the end of deep sleep. So it's not really something we believe is happening during napping. As we understand it, it's more something reserved for nighttime sleeping, but it doesn't mean a nap isn't great. (laughs) There's other benefits for napping, but we don't believe the washing is happening in a short nap. Okay. Gotcha. This is a super just random tangent question. My aunt had, she was in a wreck like decades ago and she has a shunt in her brain and the doctors always say she shouldn't be alive based on the setup of her brain, but she doesn't have any fluid in her brain. Is that fluid related to this fluid? She says that there's literally no fluid. So her brain just like rests physically in her head. It doesn't float. Is that, is, what is the role of that fluid around the brain? Oh, she's, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sorry she went through that. The fluid in the brain in general is to, and I would, it's hard to know exactly what exactly happened in that situation, but in general, the cerebral spinal fluid is for washing, protecting. It's a bit of a buffer system. It works with the blood-brain barrier. So the brain is very protective about what gets in and out of the brain. But it would be hard for me to speculate on what's happening in her specific case. But that fluid helps just a lot of protection, a lot of washing, and a lot of buffering. She has major problems sleeping because then her brain, she needs to like be constantly moving so that her brain will move around. Without the fluid, it just kind of like sits. So it's a really interesting situation. So back to cleaning the brain. So you talked about how learning helps with that and the norepinephrine and everything. So does intelligence correlate to that at all? That's an interesting question. You know, they there was a study that looked at years of, you know, intelligence is so complicated and there's so many different types of inte- types of intelligence, but one thing that was seen in some interesting studies was years of education can be helpful in terms of protecting the brain, but what they also found was that just keeping learning throughout your life. So does somebody doesn't have to, you know, have years of education, that can be helpful, but they can kind of make up for it if they just you know, listen to podcasts, go to lectures, go to talks, learn new things. If they're engaged later in life, that that can be really helpful too. So it doesn't have to be just about, oh, in my early years, I had this amount of schooling. It can be counterbalanced later in life. And no matter how much schooling somebody had, thinking about continuing to learn new things throughout their life is is important. So you mentioned how with the lymphatic system and at night, the brain is shrinking. And then you also talk in the book, this was fascinating to me about how the size of our brain changes as we age, but not so much the number of brain cells. It's more the connections and everything in between. So I'm I'm really interested. Could you talk a little bit more about that, the size of our brain and how it changes and and why? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's a bit shocking, but starting at the age of 40, the brain can start shrinking about 5% every 10 years. And that shrinking can be devastating for memory, focus, and productivity because there can be damage done to the connections between the brain cells or just the brain cells themselves. But what we're seeing and what is so hopeful is that by doing the things we've been talking about, optimizing sleep and taking care of your immune system and learning new things and some other things that are in the that we'll talk about, I'm 
sure as well, that you can slow down this process. And so that's where it's really exciting to see that, you know, you take somebody and you, you, you have them to get a brain scan and not to say everyone needs to go out and get a brain scan. That's not necessary. But the idea that we see in studies that if people do these things, that part of how the brain ages is it shrinks and that process can be slowed down by lifestyle factors. And what's actually happening in the brain is that you have about 80 billion brain cells. And as you mentioned, you're pretty much born with all of them, but which people are surprised to find out. But what you're not born with is the connections between them. You have some connections for sure, but you don't have, you know, you don't have all of them. And so by the time you're an adult, you have a hundred trillion connections in your brain. And those connections are how you think and how you feel and how you move and all your dreams and everything. And, and as we get older, we can lose those connections. And so you make a connection pretty much by learning something. And that's where that synapse is formed. And when you learn it, you make the connection. And then interestingly, just to kind of tie back to something, not to go on a tangent, but why sleep is so important. Another reason besides that washing process is anything you learn during the day, you make the connection the moment you learn it between your brain cells or connections. But when you sleep at night while you're dreaming, during the dreaming process, your brain finds every new connection you made that day and it makes the connection stronger. And so that's why if you don't get a good night's sleep, you don't remember the things you learn that well, that is nearly as well the next day. And so that's why sleep is so important for, for memory. And as we get older, for many factors, we, we can be losing connections, which can be negatively impacting our memory. And so part of this is that not only just taking care of the health of our brain, but just by actually learning new things causes us to make new connections and learning new things can be everything from, you know, I'm going to learn a language. I'm going to learn a musical instrument. I'm going to learn a sport, or it can just be, I'm going to be more social. I'm going to hang out with my friends and, and meet new people because that also is a key part of how our brain learns. So a, a take home in all of this is that fun is actually really good for your brain too. <laughs> and that's good news because, you know, people always think, oh, you're taking all this stuff away, but really want to say that there's a lot of stuff that's additive and, and that you can embrace that's part of your daily life that's really good for your brain. That's fascinating. So a nuance about learning. So when we say learning, okay, because you said that at night it revisits everything that we learned what is required to make something learning is literally just taking in information learning or is it something else? Yeah. Just taking in information and making a new connection. So like a new thought. Yeah. New thought. So like active learning. So there's definitely passive learning and there's unconscious learning and all those things are, you know, the brain is so complicated, works on many levels. But when we're talking about this, we're saying like, I'm going to, you know, pretty much focus on learning a new language. I'm going to learn a little some brain science or art history or, you know, whatever it is, whatever the subject is, it doesn't seem to really matter as long as it's new and interesting to you. And then, or I'm going to, you know, read a book or, or play a musical instrument, any, all that stuff where you're like, I'm going to focus on it. I'm going to actually make a new connection in my brain. That's what we're talking about. And then at night, your brain finds those new connections and, and makes them stronger. Does that also include things that might not feel like learning, but it's a new environment? Like if you just go to a new store and you see a new store? Yeah, yeah. So that's all like newness is good. So it doesn't have to be, I always say it's like, you don't have to go like halfway around the world. Like that's good. But if you just want to pick a new street in your neighborhood to walk on, you, you might notice like when you do new things or like even little new things, you tend to feel good. You know, during the last couple of years, our ability to do newness was was subdued for, you know, obvious reasons. But a piece of a very complex puzzle is that we actually saw people 
struggling. People would say like, I can't remember, you know, what day is it? Everything feels like a blur. And, and I, I, I feel like I'm, I, how much time has passed? And it's because we were lacking some newness in our day, like simple things just to counterbalance that is like, you know, try to cook a new meal, watch a new show, <laughs> go for a new, go for a place in your neighborhood that has a new walk or a different part of your town or city. All these things are really good newness, but that's why people who go like, you know, on a vacation or something, they're like, oh, I had all these new ideas. And because it's very stimulating to the brain to, to have a new environment. I'm really interested in the pruning process. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And also, how does the brain decide what to prune? Like, who's making that call? Right, right. That's a good question. The general you know, what you're talking about that's in the book is this idea that when you're born, as, as we said, you, you have pretty much all your brain cells, the 80 billion, but you don't have a lot of the connections. And that's why, you know, babies can't do that much. <laughs> they can't, they, they have trouble even like, you know, coordinating or moving or thinking obvious. These are obvious statements. But then as the child grows up and they see new things and they hear new things, and they experience new things, they keep making new connections. And what's amazing is that there's a certain period of life up to around the age of like seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, where we call it synaptic exuberance. And they're actually like overconnect their brain. Their brain has more than a hundred trillion connections, way, way more. What's happening there is that the brain is just learning so much. Let's just think about like, you know, the world is so new, everything you see and smell and taste and, and experience. And then during this process of pruning, your brain decides which of these connections now are we going to keep and which are we going to get rid of? And part of that forms aspects of your personality, who, what you're going to be like, what, you know, things that you're, things you're going to remember, things you're going to forget. And it's kind of like a garden, you know, if you let your garden grow and then you pull the weeds or pull things that, you know, you feel like, oh, I don't think that matches here. That's basically what's happening in your brain during this process. This pruning process, not to go off, off, off on another tangent, happens the rest of your life. Part of it happens while you're dreaming. Your brain goes, oh, you learned something new here. Let's scan the brain and see if there's something we should get rid of that we don't need. And that's, we believe, is part of why our dreams are oftentimes, not always, but a mix of things that like you, you, you just learned or just experienced and things you haven't thought about in a really long time. Dreams are very mysterious and we don't completely understand them, but that's a part of what we believe is happening. But going back to the, the pruning process is that your, your big question is we don't 100% know why we get rid of certain things. The brain prioritizes things that it believes are important. We know that when we make memories that are based upon our survival, things that are funny, things that are emotional, the brain tends to tag them in a way where we go, this is important. Like keep this one and get rid of other things because things that are emotional are often tied. If you think of our ancestors, things that were scary, you know, th those are things that we had to remember for our survival. So we know that that's tied in there somehow. But beyond that, that's a big question that we don't really understand is why does the brain say, you know, this stuff is important and this stuff isn't, but it seems to do a pretty good job <laughs> of, of, you know, removing quite a bit of, of things and, and keeping things that are important. But, you know, things that are tied to motor skills and things that are essential, obviously, for the most part stay. And then things that you know, we take in so much information, so much stimulation that the brain has to filter a lot of it out and, and get rid of a lot of connections. I really want to know, is there like a nature versus nurture debate about pruning? Like, do some people think it's more genetic, what your personality becomes, and some people think it's more environmental? Yeah, I think that that's like you're getting to the essence of some like humongous questions, which are, if you take, you know, twins or, or and you raise them in different environments, is their brain going to prune differently? And, and it seems like there's aspects of that that are 
genetic that, you know, you take, you see in twin studies or certain things that even if they're raised apart, they're similar. And there's same things that seem to have a high environmental influence. Same for just, you know, certain diseases, certain underlying conditions. It seems to be the same. It's so complicated at this point, And it's, you know, you're, you're asking one of the most fascinating questions, but we don't really understand exactly, you know, how much of this is genetic, how much of it isn't. We see like, you know, talent definitely is something that seems to be preserved in, in the brain in generations in general, but very com- in a very complex way. If somebody practices something that's related to their talent in a sport or a musical instrument or anything like that, it seems the brain prioritizes that and builds upon it. And those connections are made more readily and more easily. And that's a mix of, you know, genetics being in the right environment. But beyond that, it's, it's, there's a lot, a lot, a lot we have to learn there. So like if a parent is raising their child, because you spoke about how emotion really affects it. And then I imagine repetition also affects it. Does that mean like when you're raising your kid that if you're making experiences really emotional, it's going to affect more how that child turns out in the end or like, or on the flip side, like repetition, the things that you do more. I'm just really interested by like the power that the parent has over affecting the child's future personality. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's huge, and and something we need to talk about. And it's, you know, child development. The brain is what you're getting at is that, and, and what you're you're speaking about is that there's this time in our life where the brain is going through a lot of developmental. It's basically like it's like your home or your apartment under construction, and how well it's constructed in those times can make a difference in terms of raising the risk for anxiety, depression, uh, other issues, because essentially the brain is developing itself in a way where it is responding to the environment. So, you know, an environment where somebody is supported, they feel like they can they can they can flourish they're 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 being listened to all these things impact how the brain develops if somebody's in a threatening environment or a traumatic environment the brain develops in a way where it's often more likely to have like a fight or flight response in moments where it could cause the brain to sort of essentially panic. And that's understandable because that individual was raised in an environment where they needed to survive. They needed to flee. They needed to protect themselves. And that can carry over later in life. The the take-homes from all of this are that we want to make sure that the environments for children are healthy, stable, as best we can. We want to prioritize this at home and at school and everywhere that we can. This is an important piece of brain development and impact the rest of one's life. The flip side to it is that the brain, although a lot of the development takes place early on, the brain is malleable. It can change. It can adjust. It can heal. And of course, we never want these things to happen, but things do happen in life that are traumatic and that are difficult. And that's just, you know, some of those things are very much out of our control, but we see that the brain can heal. It can So, for example, if we go back to this idea of making connections, if somebody experiences something traumatic, that connection, because it's emotional, sometimes the brain will make that connection stick. And we see that, for example, in a very, like, you know, very simple version of PTSD is that that connection just keeps being revisited and revisited and revisited. Again, you know, things we're talking about are highly complicated and we're distilling them down to, you know, things that we just want to not make, you know, We don't want to make a major assumptions, but we're just saying that this is a part of how the brain works in these processes. And that if those connections are made, what's very hopeful about how the brain works is that later in life, those connections can be readjusted so that 
you know, under the, that's why therapy really works is that you're working with somebody who can take those connections, break them apart and reconnect them in a way that is more positive, that is more able to have perspective or more able to, to, you know, move on. So the brain isn't really good at inaccuracy of memory, but it, it is much better at adapting. And that's what's amazing about our brain is that we don't really remember things that accurately because our brain is constantly changing and evolving every time we remember something. And that's why, you know, you, you might, in a very simple way, you might talk to somebody, remember that party you went to 10 years ago or when we were kids? And you have two totally different versions because every time you revisit a memory, you actually break those memories, break those connections apart and put them back together, which is actually gives us hope for, in therapy, we can take connections and rebuild them in a more positive way. So there's a lot, it was a, you know, it's a big, big topic, but it's important. I think the take home to say is that we just want to, you know, take care of our brain in early stages and then throughout our life. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, 
you want danger coffee. And of course I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10 year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. I love it. This actually haunts me. So every time I have an experience that's, you know, a story worth telling. I <laughs> I get a little stressed about it because I know that the first time I retell it to somebody, I'm crystallizing the way I remember it, at least that time. And then, you know, every time I retell it, I'm further crystallizing my version of it. So it's like I'm getting farther and farther away from probably what actually happened. That's normal though. That's not you. That's very, very normal. That's that's how that's how our brain works. We every experience and that we've had in between the times that we tell the story can inform how we retell it. And then you really, we really believe that the latest version is what happened when it's and that's why, you know eyewitness testimony and all these things are are actually not that accurate because every time somebody retells a story, it's not very likely has drifted. So the APOE4 gene, why is that connected to cognitive decline? Like what is it actually doing? Yeah, that's a really good question. So part of this we understand and part of it we're still understanding. But what, what's happening with this gene is that there's a couple of things that are happening is that there is a relationship with this gene into how much trash is formed in the brain. Basically, when when certain parts of the brain, certain fragments are recycled, they're recycled in a manner where they're chopped up and they are reused. And what can happen with this gene is it causes more chopping, more breaking up, and less recycling. So there's this accumulation of this waste. But that's not the only thing that we believe this gene is involved in. Just like we talked about, actually bringing it back to RIN1, what we talked about in the very beginning, that this gene can be involved in breast cancer, can be involved in learning memory. We believe the same is with involved in APOE, the different versions of it. We believe it's involved with recycling of, of aspects of, of fragments in the brain that are broken down and then reused, and it's not as efficient in certain cases. We also believe this gene plays a role in metabolism in the brain, and if that's not functioning properly, then that can have a negative impact on how brain cells communicate. It's like they're not using the fuel properly. And then other aspects of this is, is that we, we still are learning about how APO works. We also believe it plays a role possibly with cholesterol as well and how cholesterol is utilized in the brain, which cholesterol is actually important. It's a signaling molecule in the brain, but it it might go awry with certain variations of, of this gene. So not just one thing is, is, is the take-home, but it has multiple factors. And we seem to be learning more and more about how it can have different relationships to multiple parts of our health. Do we know why it developed? Because I, I would assume that it had a purpose. Like, was it based on the diet of the people at the time or the environment? Or like, what was its purpose? Yeah, that's such a good point. So there is this interesting research that in different environments that these genes might have had different functions. And that now that we are in a world where we have certain lifestyle factors that might compound a negative impact of a gene that might not have been as impactful in other environments. And that's a that's a big area of future research and trying to understand this. But we don't clearly understand 
you know, sometimes mutations are are in ways protective, in ways that we 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 eventually understand, and sometimes they're just mutations that are are there and they and they're they're inherited in a way that you know we want to try to diminish their negative impact. How does it affect the risk for cognitive decline if people have it? Yeah, so it's not determinant. It it's raises the risk. It's a significant increase, and it, the the key point is is that. This is something people can test for. It's something you'd want to talk about with a physician or a genetic counselor because some people take this information or people take this information in different ways. So some people say, you know, I want to know. And, and if, I, if I know I have this gene that it raises my risk, then I'm going to really double down on all these lifestyle factors. I'm going to be on top of everything I can to be on the latest research and early detection. I'm going to work with a neurologist. And some people say, well, this information is not determinant. I'm going to just try to live a healthy life and knowing this information, if I have it or don't have it, is actually going to stress me out and worry me. And that's not good for your brain health if you're constantly chronically stressed out and worried. So it really is at this point an individualized decision about whether or not knowing that information is is appropriate for the person, but being aware that it's not determinant. It does raise the risk. It it doesn't mean it's destiny, but it can be very helpful for some people to know. And for other people, they might just want to focus on all the healthy things they can do. And that's, you know, that's a complicated conversation for somebody really trying to sit down and think about what information is of benefit to them as an individual. Well, and either way, that's why I just think it's so valuable, the work you're doing, because reading your book provides so much power for people to, you know, do the things to support their brain health. So thank you for that. And okay, so memory, I loved the memory section of your book. Okay, first of all, it blew my mind. You said, okay, our memory capacity is 2.5. Is it petabytes? Petabytes, which is the equivalent of 300 million hours of TV daily? No, that'd be like that would be the amount, like that's the storage capacity, which is like... Oh, oh, storage capacity. Okay. I mean, that's just, that's crazy. Okay. So memory formation, how does it actually happen? I love the whole concept of like the waiting room and the seven seconds and what's important. So could you tell listeners a little bit about how we actually form memory? This is just fascinating to me. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah, definitely. This idea that we have this, we have essentially almost unlimited memory capacity. So there's always, you know, these things like, oh, you're only using 10% of your brain. Really, we want to think about it this way. You have, you can remember a lot, (laughs) a lot, a lot of information, but your brain doesn't want you to. That's the thing is your brain wants to forget. It doesn't want to fill up with useless information. It doesn't want to, anything that's not important. Your brain is constantly filtering things out. And part of this is that there's just so much happening in the world. There's just like, even right now in the moment that we're talking, you know, there's what's happening outside through the window. There's how the, you know, the the floor feels and what the, you know, all these things And your brain is trying to shut all that stuff out so that you can just focus on what's important. And sometimes that's working. And sometimes it's like, you're just so distracted. But the idea is, is that anything new that you're learning or seeing or experiencing has to go through certain stages in the brain. It's not like, it's not like your brain is a video camera and it's just recording everything you're seeing and you're like, oh, I want to pull up that video file and play it back. Instead, what's happening is, is that the information goes first essentially to a part of your brain called the hippocampus. And this part of the brain is the waiting room and the information waits there. So anything you, you, know, you, you see or you, you experience goes there and it waits. 
And the rest of your brain decides, is this information worth it? Or is this a complete waste of my time? Because again, your brain doesn't want to fill up with useless stuff. And if it's important, it leaves this waiting room and it's transferred on to other parts of the brain where you're actually going to remember it. And if it's not worth it, your brain basically disposes of it. It just doesn't, it doesn't prioritize it. And so, you know, we live in a world where you might be saying, like, where, where did I put my keys or where did I park my car? Wait, what was, what was I just doing? And a lot of this relates to the fact that we're so either multitasking or we're just on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. It's like, you know, just you don't spend two seconds remembering, remembering where you put your keys or parked your car. You're just on to the next. Because we realize that part of what helps our brain determine if something is worth remembering is if you're focusing on it for about seven to 10 seconds. And in that time, while the information is in the hippocampus and it's waiting there, if you're focusing on it and you don't have distractions, your brain goes, oh, this information is worth it. It's important. And it transfers it on to other parts of the brain instead of just throwing it away. So in all this complexity, something that's remarkably simple and effective is, you know, the next time you want to learn something, just say to yourself, I'm just going to focus on this and nothing but this for about seven to 10 seconds. People are surprised how much more they remember because we're so often just on to the next that we're just wondering why we're forgetting so much or, you know, we're on two screen, two, three screens at the same time, texting while we're talking. And we're like, why, why are we not remembering this stuff? Well, your brain figures this is all probably not that important because I'm not focusing on it. My aunt with a brain issue, she has a lot of trouble creating. Okay. Well, actually, before I say that, so when the information comes in and then it decides that it's important and you keep it, is that moving it to short-term memory? Yeah. So we actually call short-term memory, you know, day-to-day life. People say, oh, what did I have for lunch? Or who's that person I met a few hours ago? But in in this, in, in brain science, we pretty much think of short-term memory as like these seven to 10 seconds. And then once it's passed on, we say that's long-term memory. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's different than how we usually think about it. But once it's past this threshold or this filtering step, we're pretty much saying this is long-term memory now. And what is working memory? Working memory is like, you think of it like scratch pad memory where you're, let's say you, you like, you're doing math. That's a really good example of it. And like, you have to remember in your head what the last step was so you can solve the next step. And it's the ability to just kind of hold multiple pieces of information in your brain while you're working through a problem. It's also like in music, you you have to be able to quickly reach back and remember something because you're in the process of problem solving or, or, you know, navigating somewhere. And that's, you're like working with the memory. Gotcha. Okay. So she must have issues forming long-term memory. So what she has to do, and now this all makes sense talking to you and learning this. She told me she has to, when she like learns something, she has to write it down and she has to focus on it for like a certain amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, and that's helpful for, for a lot of people is that writing it down not only forces you to spend some time with it, it's also a motor skill. And a motor skill actually bypasses the hippocampus. And that's why like riding a bike is something that people pretty much don't forget is because anything motor is, is like, it's like a shortcut to memory for the brain. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be filtered as much. So if you are writing something down, you're tapping into some aspects of motor memory, which can help you remember better. And it also is taking a little bit extra time, which also helps in this dual benefit of helping with getting past the hippocampus. Is it true? They say that you never actually, well, that doesn't make sense. They say that you never lose any of your memories. Is that true? Once they're in long-term memory? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, You know, we don't really know. We think that 
they're always there, but they are, unless there's some sort of, you know, damage done to the brain in an, in an accident or a traumatic injury. But this idea that if you think of the brain cells and you think of when you remember something, the, there's basically that connection there. And then what happens is, is that that connection essentially moves apart a bit and that's how you forget or you get rusty at something. And then when you practice, you move the connection closer together. It's interesting. There, there is this idea that possibly the connection is always there, but it just moves apart until you reprioritize it again. But in terms of, you know, significant memory loss, there are, or damage to the brain due to a, an underlying condition or disease, that connection might, or those brain cells might be damaged. But in a, you know, other situations of just sort of remembering things, it is possible. And there is a theory that you just, you never really forget it. You just kind of move the connection farther apart. Yeah. I guess like an analogy would be if memories is like stuffing stuff in your closet, you know, it's the stuff always in there somewhere. What's interesting is like music, for example, you know, you'd say, oh, I've never, or smell. That's an example where you, you will smell something and it's like all of a sudden it ignites or connects up in your brain these things you haven't thought about in a really long time or uh, like a song and all of a sudden all these memories flood back so it's this idea like those connections are i like the way you say that it's like it's in the closet but but it wasn't quite connected and then once you kind of tap into that it's like oh this is all this stuff is still here yeah and so they also often say that scent is the strongest sense connected to memory a is that true and b if so is that just because of the proximity of the olfactory nerve too? Is it a physical thing? It's several things. It's, it's It depends upon the person. So some people are really, their memory is really strong, like auditory. Some people are really strong visually. Some people are really strong with smell or touch. It really depends. But scent is really, really strong. Visual is really strong too. It's a mix of what you're saying is that the proximity of, we don't tend to think about it, but you, 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 you brought it up, is that your brain is really at the top of your nose. <laughs> and so that's part of what's happening. And also that smell is so important for survival that it's just highly prioritized. If you think about like how our ancestors would get hurt, yeah, obviously you have to hear things, you have to, you have to see things, but you know, smelling your food or smelling a predator, all these things are critically important to know if things are spoiled or poisoned or things like that. I'm so interested by it because I feel like people don't really, or maybe I'm just not the type that smell and scent is the main thing for me. I personally don't like think about smells that much, but if I smell something, then it's like, you know, bam, you get hit with a memory. I just find that really interesting. I don't easily remember a scent. Like if you tell me to remember a scent, it's hard for me to like conjure that in my brain. But if I smell something, I immediately get hit. So I I just find that really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah. And then I was excited. You mentioned something. I was wondering if you're going to mention it. The thing that happens where you have a task to do and then you walk into another room and then you forget and then you walk back into the room and you remember what's going on there. Yeah. It's similar to this idea that those, that the distraction of the new environment causes that information that was very likely in the hippocampus to just sort of be ignored for that moment and thrown away. That's why People say, oh, retrace your steps. That can be helpful. But something that is like a dramatic shift in what you're seeing changes your focus and your brain just doesn't hold on to that information that you were thinking about what you needed to do. You know, a very common one is the refrigerator. You go to the refrigerator, you open the door, you're like, why, why, am, I, why am I standing here? Why did I walk in this room? And then just kind of saying, well, what happened in the last 10 seconds? Did I get a phone call, a text? Uh, did I check Instagram? Did, was there any sort of distraction? Because that, that distraction is what is often keeping us from 
remembering what we just had to do. And so it's really helpful for people because people start to worry and they say, oh, no, I'm starting noticing that I'm starting to forget things. And of course, we don't want to ignore that. And that's a key point of everything we're talking about is we don't want to just say, oh, it's nothing. But one of the first things to be aware of is just say like, wait, am I, am I being distracted? Am I multitasking? Nothing wrong with multitasking. But in the moments we want to remember things and learn things, it's important to say, wait, let me just focus on this one thing. And people are often surprised how that can be very helpful. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. So it sounds like, so say you're in a room and you want to do something in another room. And so you're thinking about it for seven seconds and then you go into the new room. Or I guess you, maybe you didn't think about it for seven seconds. You did not think about, you didn't think about it long enough to remember it. So then you go into the new room and you, you forget. So then you go back and then you remember, but it sounds like you're not really remembering if you didn't keep it. Are you just re-exposing yourself to the stimuli that made you think of doing the action in the first place? Yeah, that, that's, that is actually what you're saying is what we believe is happening is that you're, you're putting yourself back in the position where you're going to reignite that thought or you're jogging your memory. You know, our, our memories are all connected. There's a lot of, in those hundred trillion connections, there's a lot of intertanglement. And that's why, you know, one thought leads to the next in this idea of like, if you notice this is happening, and you're going from one room to the next, just be like, okay, I know I'm walking to the next room. I'm going to just really focus on this thing I have to do and not be, you know, on my phone or distracted or, and, and just focus on this. And, and people are often surprised that they, they stay, they stay remembering what they need to remember. Another thing, so talking about like scent, and you also mentioned our other senses. And, and so you talk about the connection between, you know, people losing their, their eyesight or their hearing and how that affects their dementia risk. What's happening there? Does that relate to, why does that increase dementia risk? Yeah, yeah, that's that's so important. And that's something that is not being talked about enough is that these aspects of our senses like hearing and sight, and hearing is the one we actually know quite a bit about, is that even mild hearing loss can like double the risk of, of memory loss or, or dementia risk. Triple, if it's if it's like moderate, it triples the risk. If it's severe hearing loss, it's like five times the risk of losing memory or developing dementia. And we believe what's happening, and before I go any further, I should say that it's important to note that 
in most of these cases, if you just treat the hearing loss with something like a hearing aid, these risk factors go down significantly. And so it's highly treatable in many cases. But what we believe is happening is that if we're not hearing, we're not learning, we're not engaged. And that goes back to that idea of one of the most important things for our brain is to learn new things. So if you think about, you know, when people are, 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 are being social, oftentimes when they, when they can't hear, they, they feel isolated. They might not be listening to conversations or absorbing the information. So that's why, you know, we want to get the word out that if you're noticing, you know, get your hearing checked and if you're noticing any subtle signs, get on top of it right away. We want to keep those nerves stimulated and we stimulate them by using them. And if it's all these things are use it or lose it. And another example you brought up, which is important too, which is sight. People who get cataract surgery when they need it, they lower their risk of dementia like 10 years later for the next 10 years. So we just want to be doing everything we can to leverage all the miracles of, you know, modern medicine, the things that we know work that can be helpful in keeping our brain active and engaged. For people who are born blind or deaf, I would guess there's not that connection. Yeah, yeah. So we don't see that in those cases. And we believe that that's because there's other senses that are being utilized and that that's an important distinction. That's so interesting. So it's like if you if you get hearing loss later in life or, you know, losing your sight, if you could have always been that way, you would be okay. But because you knew what you were before in a way, or not knew what you were before, but it's just interesting that you have to like have something to lose it for it to have the negative effect. Yeah, it's the it's the loss of the engagement. So if the person, you know, if an individual who is born deaf or blind, if they lose engagement through the other sense that they're using, that would be then something to to be rectifying or concerning. Speaking of learning, so you talk about and for listeners, you're just going to have to get the book because there's so much information and we're only barely touching on it. But you talk about you know ways to learn and also ways to innovate, which is really, really interesting. What is the, is it the Pomodoro method? Yeah, yeah. So th- that's that's an older method, but it's it's still very helpful. And it's really just the idea that we tend to multitask. And again, that can be okay sometimes during the day. But in those moments that you really want information to stick, just setting aside like a few minutes, even setting a timer. So this method is usually setting a timer, eliminating all distraction and just saying, I'm going to just do this task that I need to do for you know 20 to 25 minutes. And then I'm going to take a quick break. And it, there's no hard and fast rule that you have to like, it has to be this exact amount of time with this break, but somewhere in the range of, you know, 20 to 30 minutes and then a few minute break. People can work up to that. They can find what's comfortable for them. But the key take home in all of this is that there, there can be this feeling like, you know, we're answering emails and texts and, and bouncing between sports scores and travel sites and the weather and our work. And then you get to a point in the day and you're like, ah, oh, did I, I did I get done as much as I wanted to get done? Or I just felt like I was on that hamster wheel all day long. And there's these really fascinating studies that were done where they looked at people who were basically like real innovators in their field. And they looked at like, you know, directors and musicians and scientists and business people, didn't matter what they did. And they're like, let's follow them around for, for a couple of weeks and, and just see what they do. And the, the, the scientists who did this, was actually several studies, but they were like, it's going to be different for everybody. But they found that, Pretty consistently, people who were you know high achieving in their field didn't matter what field they were in. They followed this pattern where they spent some time during the day doing what we just talked about. They're like, I'm going to eliminate all distraction. I'm going to just focus on what I have to get done, my work, and then I'm going to take a break. And like, it's like it's like oh, that sounds kind of obvious, but if you just if we assess sometimes our day, it's like, wow, how much of the day am I actually taking for total focus and like 
total relaxation. And they found that some of their best ideas happened in the relaxation moments where they weren't like, I'm going to answer a work email while I take my walk. It's like, no, they went for a swim or they took a walk. And then their brain played with all the information that they were focused on earlier. So it's not like the breakthrough thought or the innovative idea happened while they were like really working hard, but it's like it, it planted the seed and allowed it to bloom in, in the moments that they were just doing something more fun or mindless. And that just thinking about, oh, in my day, I just want to you know, have those moments of pure focus, pure break. And a couple cycles of that. And then it doesn't have to be all day, every day, but that's just something interesting that's been found in this, this kind of this pattern that seems to be really helpful. Is that a reason that historically, and then probably especially now, because we're so distracted by our phones, and this is one of the only time you cannot be on your phone when you're in the shower, like having a shower insight? Yeah, yeah, that's it's that's part of it. So the, the the example I use in the book is also Billy Joel was talking to Don Henley and they're like, when do you come up with your best song ideas? And they're like, when we're washing dishes, they both said the same thing. And it's probably, you can't look at your phone. You shouldn't be looking at your phone when you're washing dishes. dishes. It's like this mindless sort of like activity. The shower is the same thing. It's like, you're sort of just relaxing and you're not distracted and you're sort of letting your brain play with information. And that's what we want to do. We just want to let the brain, the brain can really, you know, figure things out. And that's, you know, you might wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, I have this new idea. My brain played with the information while I was asleep. Or we go back to the idea of like getting out of your environment a little bit, a new, like a a vacation, or even just a new area of your town, a new street. And you're like, I'm having all these it's kind of these new ideas because we just sort of break out of kind of a repetition that we, we tend to fall into. That's easy to fall into. One last topic I'd love to just briefly touch on, and I will refer listeners to your book to learn more. But so in, historically on this show, I've had people in two camps for Alzheimer's specifically and diet. So I had the the Scherzeis at Loma Linda who run the Alzheimer's, I'm not sure, the, the department there at, at Loma Linda. They propose a very heavily plant-based diet for brain health. And then I've had Max Lugavere, who's very much on the other side of things as far as the importance of animal products. Where do you fall on the spectrum when it comes to diet and brain health? And I know that's a huge question and we're running out of time, just briefly. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think there's room for both. So that's what I would say is that the, the diet that we see a lot of evidence for is something in the world of Mediterranean-like diet. There's the MIND diet that is is kind of like a Mediterranean diet mixed with a, a heart-healthy DASH diet. And it focuses on a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables. I should say more vegetables than fruits, but it includes fruits, includes blueberries as a fruit, some other fruits too. But it includes nuts, beans, there's lean meat, there's fish. That sort of diet, we just have a lot of evidence that it's beneficial Purely vegetarian diets, plant-based diets can be really good too. I think there is a concern that if somebody is on a vegetarian diet, just to make sure that they're getting adequate B12 and choline, which are important for the brain. And those are often, specifically choline is often found in more meat products. So it, it, I think that if we look at all the data, its diet is individualized and there's room for some versions of these diets that people find, you know, this one diet is not the cure. It's not the it's not the the perfect diet for everybody. But we tend to see that in all this complexity for diet, there's some pretty simple takeaway rules that apply. And one is minimizing the processed food. I was just actually reading a study this morning that was really interesting that they found that if people had 20% of their diet had processed food in it, they had about a 30% increased risk of developing dementia or memory loss. And the average American is having 56% of their diet processed food. 
And so really just something that's just really simple, you know, whatever diet you find works for you, make a part of it to minimize the processed foods. To, to, it doesn't have to be completely eliminated because they actually found in the same study that there is room for an, adult, an indulgence here or there. People who had most of their diet, like most of their diet was minimally processed, fruits, vegetables, you know, lean meats, if that works for the person, fiber, then the impact of a small amount of, of these ultra processed ingredients didn't seem to have much of an impact. But when it's, you know, in the 20% region or more of the diet, then we're getting concerned. So, you know, I think that things that are too restrictive are, are, are hard to follow for people. That's why Mediterranean-like diets are more easy. They're more lifestyle-based. There's a lot of good, tasty, healthy food there. But again, you know, within these parameters of, you know, look at your plate, try to have a handful of, of colorful fruits and vegetables, uh, not to just throw out study after study, but another study that came out a few weeks ago is that just think about like broccoli, spinach, kale, beans, tomatoes, tea, you might not love all of them, but you know, that some of the, some, some aspect of those things in your diet, the study found that people who have those things in their diet, lower their risk of, of memory loss or dementia by about 30%. So there's these flavanols that we believe they're very protective to the brain. So, you know, minimizing the processed foods, adding these brain healthy foods on the plate, most meals is a really good first step. And then beyond there, I think there's room for people to say, you know, the max diet, the max Lugavir diet is something that really works for me, or the Loma Linda diet is something that really works for me. And I think that's, there, there's, there's room for, for all, through, through these different avenues. How about the recommendation in the mind diet to have one glass of red wine per day? Yeah, that's, I, I always like, I do a lot of speaking and the only time I've ever, I've ever gotten a standing ovation was when I said that. So that was people, people, you know, alcohol is one of the most controversial aspects of brain health. You look study after study just conflicts. And I think that if the mind diet, it's included in a moderate amount, there's evidence that wine has some anti-inflammatory benefits, antioxidants. It can have some relaxing benefits, but the only caveat is, is that, well, I'll just start, I'll take one step back. This is what we know. Past moderate alcohol intake, there's a lot of evidence that's not good for the brain. We're not at the point where we would say people need to start drinking for their brain health. That's not what we're saying. But we would say that moderate alcohol, there, there's evidence in the mind diet that it can be a benefit, but there are people who have underlying conditions or genetics that make alcohol not a good choice for them. And they should just, you know, once or twice a year, just bring it up to your doctor and just say, based on everything you know about me, is there any reason why I just want to be more careful? I, I want to be aware of anything that's going on with me individually. But I think that there, there's you know, this evidence it can be a benefit in moderation and then taking that one step to make it individualized. I think you said that the APOE4 gene made it there were not the benefits associated. Yeah, so that that's what we see. So if, if you if you if you have certain underlying genetics, or let's say you have a condition where alcohol might exacerbate that condition, and then that condition also impacts your brain health, then then you want to say, okay, let me just think about what's the you know what is a right amount for for that individual and taking it to the point, and also saying like you know we always want to look at the it's not one factor, it's all these factors together, and thinking about how do we leverage you know, sleep and diet and exercise and eating and all these things together to say, like, what is the right formula, you know, per person? It's not that everybody has to be on this strict, strict plan, but saying like, okay, which of these things are things that I can do easily and simply in a way that I can optimize my life and, you know, feel my best. That's a really big measure of this is how are you feeling day to day and keeping it simple and saying, what are these things that I can do that can have a big impact? 
I mean, that's a perfect way to end because that really sums up what you're doing with this book, which is showing all the things people can do to best support their brain health. And I just find it so, so valuable. And one of the things you talk about is the importance of mindset and positivity and happiness and how that affects things and gratitude and loving compassion meditation. So the last question I ask every single guest on this show actually relates to that. And it is, what is something that you're grateful for? So I'm grateful for so much. I'm grateful that you took the time to talk to me. I'm very grateful for that. I'm grateful for my, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for my family. Health is something I, I, I've had some issues in the past and that's what inspired me to really get into this field. So I'm every day I'm, I am so grateful for my health. And I would say that those are the, the top things is just, you know, my health, my family and, and being able to be in an environment where we can try to do our best each day. Well, I love that so much. I am so grateful for the work that you're doing. It's really, really incredible. All listeners, get the age-proof brain. If any of this even remotely interested you, there's so much more information in there. So thank you so much for what you're doing. Are you writing any future books? I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, I think hopefully, hopefully down the road. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hopefully you can come back in the future. How can people best follow your work? Oh, thanks. Either my website, drmarkmilstein.com. I'm starting to do more things on Instagram too at drmarkmilstein.com. And then on my website, there's a, a sign up if you want to get like a once once every few weeks newsletter with tips. I always like to give take-home tips. I like to say little things that make a big difference based upon the research. That's there for you too. Awesome. Well, we will put links to all of that in the show notes. Also, I'll have to send you my, my supplement, Serapeptase. Have you heard of that? I'm not that familiar with that. No. Okay. I'll send it to you. It's my supplement and it, it's been shown to break down amyloid plaque, at least in, I think in, in vitro studies. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate this and I really, really do. And enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.